Well, welcome to the um, Over the Page, the Vale of Glamorgan Library podcast. I'm Chris Edwards, a librarian in the Vale, and I'm sitting in Dinners Palace Library here with Dr. Joan Andrews, one of the Dinners Palace volunteers. I'm going to be speaking to Joan about her book, A Cast of Fourteen, a book of 14 characters and their times in the parish of St. Andrews Major and Dinners Palace. Dinners today is uh, a large village of over 8,000 people. For those who can't quite uh, place us on the map, we're in the Vale of Glamorgan in the south of Wales, about five and a half miles from Cardiff and on the route to Barry. So welcome, Joan. Good opportunity and nice to be able to come here to talk to you about your book. Hey, perhaps we can start by you just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this. I suppose, like so many things, they start almost from the time you're born. They influence you as the years go by. I'm a Cockney kid, born in Plaster, West Ham, who have won the Cup occasionally. My reason for there was that my family were Enders, though Bell still existed. So I'm genuine. Hitler hadn't knocked them down. So from then on, things that influenced the writing of this book, I think, come from all sections of my life. As a child, I went to an odd school just after the Second World War. My father had come out of the forces, and he was a bit concerned that as an only girl, I'd grown up in a household of women. And so he sent me to a very new, as it was then, co-educational school, again in the eastern side of London, Dagnum of all rough places to grow up. But it was a great school. It was an education of never saying any problems, saying boo to any goose that came to you. I enjoyed my schooling. I particularly enjoyed history. But of course, it's a very different history from what we are thinking about today. It was political history, the kings, the emperors, the wars, who killed who and so on. And I'll come back to a definition of local history, perhaps at a later stage. And my professional interest turned to the sciences. And I went as a medical student and later as a junior doctor to the London Hospital Medical College. Now that's important because it was the only medical college in the kingdom. All the rest were just schools. Oh. Our charter was different. and We only got our royal attribute more recently. That again was right in the middle of the East End in the Whitechapel Road. And were you the first in your family to take up medicine? I was not only the first in the family, but the London had a little row when the NHS came in. And the NHS, only four years before I went up, said, if you don't take women students, you don't get any money. And so I was one of the first four women in a class of 70. Really? Uh, for a Cockney kid, I think I was taken as the token Cockney kid. Teaching then to medical students took two particular facets that influenced me. The first, which was a good thing. We worked as a firm. So for three or six months, even as a junior student, you stayed with the same set of people, the same junior doctors, and more important, the same two consultants or more sometimes, who we called chiefs. And you got to know them very well. And the two that really influenced me, and one more than any other, was A.E. Clark Kennedy, who was senior fellow of Corpus Christi, so did a few other things on the side when he wasn't at the London. And the second one was Rear Admiral Lloyd Rusby, who was physician in charge of the Royal Naval Hospital at Greenwich. But it was CK that is why I've gone to this bit of my life. He was way before his time. He wrote two books and taught for a long time about medicine in its human setting and people as patients. Because we were taught, OK, 
about disease. And if somebody happened to have the disease, gosh, the disease was fascinating, but that was all important. And CK was really the first, probably in the world, who brought over this concept of it's the person with the disease that should matter. And that's what we call holistic medicine today mm. and all the new, new jargon. That makes good sense to us these days. <laughs> yes, particularly today. But this little dream happened long before COVID was dreamt of. So after qualifying in 1956, I did a bit of general practice, but coming pleasingly sure that I'd like to do something a bit more technical, a bit more scientific. I chose obstetrics and gynaecology. And what was so great for the next few years was how things changed. And this again influences my characters. When I qualified, antibiotics had just come. The very first treatment for tuberculosis had just appeared. Hereditary genetics was just still a slight, tiny little flame. Certainly chromosomes, we had insulin, but we certainly didn't have the sex hormones. So no old contraception, no fertility treatment. And this was, I think, for many of us, one of the great things of the specialty. It was technical, you worked with real people, and science was changing so fast. Very interesting times, right there at the beginning of the NHS. It was. I treated the Quaid twins in my first job. Did you really? When they were twins? (laughs) I didn't ask. I mean, rather, when they were children? (laughs) No, they brought all their lads and women in to be treated in the receiving room at the London one (laughs) night. And the only one helping me was the lady police constable, because it was the night of the police ball. Fascinating times. A few times. Yeah, fascinating times. So how did you get from there to um, Dennis Paris, Joe? The usual way. In those days, we moved much more. We had a few marriage doctors because there were still some post-war people who'd worked through the war as dentists or as professional soldiers. So some of our year were considerably older, and they obviously had family commitments, but most of us didn't. So we had a reasonable social life, but it was with other students. And I suppose... One of the early things was you moved around, therefore, of course, you didn't have a wife and children to consider. So I worked all over the country. And it was really, I suppose, after the spell in general practice, it became clear that if I wanted to make my way to the top, particularly wearing usually a skirt and not trousers, I'd got to be one better than other people. Mm-hmm. And I had a woman boss very early on who made that absolutely clear. So I looked for a university. Cardiff kindly took me. So it was absolute chance coming here. And was Dennis Palace the place you chose to live at that time? Or oh, was it, no, uh, was you it lived wild in. <laughs> I, was, I was in St David's. It was my prime hospital. My bedroom was just under the clock in the old workhouse. Wow. And the old men and their clay pipes from workhouse days were still smoking outside. But time went on. And one of the things that as I moved around the country, I got interested in, and this again is so relevant to the book, and that was a very new development with digital technology that you could now collect vast volumes of data. You could count it, you could sort it, you could analyse it, you could see how trends worked out. And I spent time with colleagues setting up a study on all birds in Greater Cardiff. Because in obstetrics, some of you will have heard me say this before, we're in many ways splendidly influenced by the fact that it's a normal process. The vast majority of mother and children come out fit, well, mm-hmm. and everyone's happy. But a very few don't. And because they're so rare, they are quite traumatic, not just for the family who bear the biggest burden, but for those looking after them. And you could be terribly influenced to do something different next time, but without evidence. And this new 
science of data analysis meant that you could start looking at even a rare condition, providing it was in a big enough population, and see what you could do. Not many computers around then. Cardiff University didn't have one, and certainly there wasn't one in any homes. Well, you did find them. They were as big as a house, probably, as well. They were bigger than the house. <laughs> and the one I used to start with was any university was given free time at Howell Atomic Energy Commission. Wow. So I used to tot up the old roads with my huge pile of punch cards and a rather primitive program. And for a couple of years, they did our analyses. We had to say what we wanted to write the program, prepare the data. But it was done at Hull, and that was fascinating. And it was the size of a house. Then commerce got in, universities got in, and Cardiff fairly soon afterwards got perfectly good staff who knew what they were doing with the computer side. So for, I suppose, 10 years or more, I worked on that as my main research interest. Changed over to the academic side, tempted to try and stay in academia, but I was far more interested in people. The than... practical side. Yeah. So my own work out of the birth survey was really, and it's very valid today, there was a big thing on the radio, still how smoking adversely influences pregnancy. And that was what my main research projects were. But also on using this big data facility to the best ability. And obviously anyone else then dipped in, top the bit they wanted, and we helped them get their research processes, often their higher degrees from it. Uh, maybe a good point just to launch off and ask you a question about the book, actually. We'll come back to some, some more of the mm. history, I'm sure, as we go along. But one of the themes that do come through this book is that medical theme. It comes into a couple of these 14 stories. I mean, the most obvious way to look mm. at it is some of the diseases that operated mm. at earlier times, mm. when really people didn't know how they caught the disease, they didn't know any of the background mm. to it, and things came in waves sometimes, didn't they? Smallpox, tuberculosis, mm. cholera. You mention all these in the book. You mention a number of characters who died of um, tuberculosis particular I think and cholera pops in the, up in there I was very interested to read it just in the last couple of days you brought up the, the word isolation that there were isolation centers and we, this is a term now that we've become very familiar with in the last year mm-hmm. haven't we? the need to self-isolate so Patrick pick out one of the characters in, in, in your book and explain yeah. a little bit about that medical side to the story Could I do it slightly the other way around and say okay. why I chose them having had I think some wee small hours Eureka, when I thought back to CK, it wasn't the disease, it was the person. So I didn't want to talk and write a conventional history. I wanted to write a history of the person in the workhouse, or the schoolgirl, or the master. So how did I choose my 14? Having got this idea of using people to exemplify life. It was relatively arbitrary. They had to have good records that I could access and analyse. They had to exemplify the life of the village as it was then. And they had to be interesting where possible. We were extremely lucky that so many records still existed for this parish. Trevelyan thinks that the parish of St Andrews is one of the three places the United Kingdom has been continuously inhabited since man's totted across the ice from Europe. So it's got a lot of history. Yes. I couldn't do it all, and I didn't have records. So the very first record starts in 1690, the first national record. And it goes through to 1900, because I reckon that's where history stops for me, and life really started. 
I mean, certainly my grandmother told me many stories from just before the 1900. And you had to stop somewhere. So there was material. I thought they were of interest. And they were in the period I wanted to talk about. And of course, in St Andrews, that was nicely split up to the time when the Barry Railway and Dock Act went through. And the railway came through St Andrews Major. And we went from 400 population until, you mentioned earlier. Around about 8,000 now, I think. What inspired you to do this in the first place? You know, what, what made you want to do Everything it? came together. Did you start off wanting to write a book or were you no. just gathering the information no. and thought, I started a book? because I bought an old house in the middle of the village in the conservation area and I wanted to know how it came to be there. Why was the railway built nowhere near the Norman Parish Church? There were good histories about the local area, Crystal Tilney in particular, Maureen Corpetis, who did the Lordship story, and that was quite fun. And I think it gradually grew me. I'd always liked history, but mm-hmm. local history is so different. The story of a patch, and my patch was the parish of St Andrews. So who died, who lived, why they died, what they did for a job, what the land was like, and that's local history. Yes, and it's the thought you can walk past their house now and think so-and-so lived in that house. Yes, and that's the difference. So I think it was that, and of course, the availability of people to teach you how to get at old records. When I retired, I went to two sessions of just very excellent basic courses on records at the old Glamorgan Record Officer underneath Mid-Glamorgan County Buildings, now our very smart Glamorgan archives. And then I'd started to get known a little bit for being interested in the subject, And we did a history exhibition when the parish hall had its centenary with the local history society. And we all took periods, and I took the period I'm talking about now, because unlike them, I only came to Dennis late. Far better that the modern history was done by local people. Mm -hmm. So the mixture went quite well. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I suppose spurred me on was, by chance, I saw advertised a course that Oxford was doing on local history and the internet, and they were advertising it. And so it proved to be the first course in the world at an academic level that would be taught entirely over the internet. They told us afterwards about 300 applied, if not more, mm-hmm. and they took 30 of us. We came from all over Europe. It was still fairly early computing days. We all had different technical equipment, so I think they hit more why than they could. But I think it was a proud moment when we got our diplomas from the department in Oxford, in the Sheldonian, and were told by the Vice-Chancellor it was the first course in the world. So that was a bit of fun. Yeah, marvellous. I seem seem to remember seeing details of that course myself. It was excellent. And half of us had the technical know-how, and the other half were the archivists, the librarians. And we had a chat room. Yes. That must be one of the first chat rooms in the world. Fantastic, too. yes. So which character do you want to pull out first then, Joan? Right. About? Shall I do the ones quickly that I'm not going to talk about first? Yes, if you like. Okay, John Stephen. He is the one that goes right back to the 1600s. The Charles II had got the throne back. He wanted money to fight the French, or so he said. Perhaps for his various lady friends, nobody knows. But the money he decided to get was from the population 
20, how many fireplaces you had, he would charge you. And this is something called the hearth tax. And I was delighted to find that the Vale Libraries have a copy of an excellent book on the Glamorgan hearth tax. So I know a bit more about it than I did before. It means that for the first time ever in the UK, we had the names of the head of every household, not just the big noises who had made the history books before. We knew who had got five or more harm. That was usually the bishop or one of his posh followers or the lord of the manor. We know who only had one half. But we also know the name of the head of the household of those two poor to pay. So it was also the first time that population was estimated from a clever little formula. I won't dwell on him. He's quite fun. A gentleman. And that's about all we know. Except, of course, wills are kept at the National Library of Wales. And you can access them online. So you can read what John Stephen did with his money. Nathaniel Wells, he's our turbulent priest. But really the interest in him is not how he came to a very sad end, but that one of his grandchildren was born in the West Indies, the son of a plantation owner. And he and his mother were both slaves. When Nathaniel's son lost his wife in the West Indies, he took up with Juggy, which I gather means Joan. And Juggy and Nathaniel Wells III were manumitted when the father died and the young man inherited all his wealth. But I only found that out because, again, listened to the radio one day. BBC were doing a programme on Black is Beautiful. And it turned out Chepstow did a lot of the work overseas, but I don't think it ever linked him to Arne Thandor. This young man was the money. first <laughs> black man yeah. to have public office in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Deputy Lord Lieutenant, Captain in the Militia at the Merthing Up Risings, Churchwarden and all the rest of it. So well worth reading as a good story. The next one, and that's William Thomas, schoolmaster and diarist. Back then, a poor man who wrote a diary, wrote it in Welsh, but it didn't disappear. It was saved, translated, lost, and then published. And again, it's in all our libraries. If you want scandal and libel better than the front page of the less reputable newspapers, read William Thomas. Yeah, the excerpts you put in there certainly... Um, he is yes. brilliant. Certainly oh, give a flavour. What makes him so nice is he also intersperses with a bit of his own life. So we know where he was born, what he did, and his family and their illnesses. Those two, very quickly, James Jenkins caught my attention because he built my house. And so we know a bit about him, typical of the time, a mason and also a small landowner. So middling sort, not poor, but certainly not And you mentioned the clay pipes that came out of the garden. Did you actually dig them up yourself by any chance? No, but I did dig up the matchbox, a lovely little metal matchbox, an advert from Huntley and Palmer that he might have used. Ebenezer Claudie, again, well worth reading about, a man of many parts, he's been called. He was one of the most important farmers in the district, prominent in everything, but quite an interesting social and medical history. So well worth looking at Ebenezer. Then going to the other end of the scale, Hannah Andrews, a pauper. It's an awful word, but that's what they were called then. She was born into poverty, lived through poverty. And through her, I tell the story of the workhouse, which I did work in and lived in. Thomas David was Miller and also Bard, two more interesting areas to explore. Now we move forward with a great jump, a railway had come through. 
what had been a really wealthy community, farming all the wealth from the limestone that had been quarried, suddenly went from 400 very rapidly to thousands, and for many poverty followed. Um, water was bad, sewage was bad. The school, which I will do in some detail in a moment, went downhill very, very rapidly because of overcrowding. And so Letty, the schoolgirl, and her schoolmaster I'll come back to, Percy Randall, he's a great character. In the New Age, quite a wealthy father, a builder. He gave young Percy, right back in the late 80s, a camera, which young Percy used. And it's his photographs that appear in many of the publications, particularly from Crystal Dilney. And I was fortunate enough to know Dick Hall, who took the old recordings of the pictures of the day and move them forward into modern photography. And then, due to the good offices of his wife, Hope, who is still alive at the age of 101, and one of our clients here until last year, gave me permission to digitalise. Richard Pritchard I privately love. He was the first medical officer of health in this area. He was very difficult to find, but he's fascinating. Mm -hmm. David Alexander, the businessman. Like many, it's an attractive place to live. And they came here. And, of course, he built Brynythen. And then I'll finish right at the very end with a bit of detail about Dorothy. But I can't go without mentioning my last character, who's Herbert Henry Lee, Major General, the last Lord of the Manor, the big man. Yes, indeed. So that's my 14th. So a good range of people. Um, it, you know, brings in the railways, brings in the rural side, brings in religion, brings in a bit of medical angle. Don't go to poverty. Nathaniel for religion of the highest order. No, <laughs> indeed. Quite scurrilous is Nathaniel, perhaps. Um, so yeah, cover all those themes, really. Mm. I must admit, when I, I look back at the book, the first one I went to was the medical health officer. And I did find him interesting. Mm. You know, we're going back to a time not that long ago, it seems. It was really, not remember. It? You know, in, in the life yeah time of grandparents where you know, so little was known and yeah. so little provision was made yeah. for people when they were sick yeah. and so little was available to stop people getting sick in the first place so sanitation Absolutely. was a big issue wasn't it so many things came back to their health it was so dreadful contrast to what the kids of today have as of course was the old age we know we've got a pension it may not be what we like for some of us we're lucky but it's not the workhouse no, to end the days in the workhouse, which was something that my grandmother was, mm. um, you know, she, she had it deep in her bones, basically, to avoid the workhouse. Yeah. Because she came from, yeah, I don't know if any, any of our forebears had gone in the workhouse, but I imagine they, they did, to be honest. Yes, well, mine were right down there. Yes, well, mine were no different, yes. Gran, when you went up on the tube to central London, you went past the huge London workhouse at Upton Park. Gran would shake her head. That's where the bad girls go. <laughs> so, yeah, it does mean something, doesn't mm. it? But not to those of today. Yeah. They can't envisage that. One thing I suppose worth just saying here, you need to work out in your own mind why both Chris and I go backwards and forwards between St Andrew's Major and Dennis Powers. Yes. I'm not used to talking about St Andrew's Major because no. I think Dennis Powers. It's because of way back past history. When the Normans came rather belatedly to Wales, they introduced a system of hundreds, which you can equate vaguely to a county. It was made up, theoretically, of a hundred parishes. Now, the hundred in which we would have been living was the hundred of Dennis Powers. And I think what confused me when I came as an income was why I did keep on changing his name. 
But as I say, for first many centuries of its life, Dennis Powers was a huge hundred stretching all the way from the port of Aberthaw to Ely and Cardiff. And St Andrew's Major was just one of many parishes within Dennis Powers. Then, about the time the railway came through, local government was beginning to change. And gradually, over the first half of the 1900s, government which had come from the 100 down to parish councils started to change to county councils, local community councils more recently. And St Andrews sort of shrunk. It was still the parish, but only the ecclesiastical mm-hmm. parish. And Dennis Paris now was almost synonymous. And when you look in records, you have to look for both. Yes. So that's one yes. puzzle. And you quite often have to, you know, cross boundaries because they don't always uh, yes. Get, you know, yes. Yes. represent the same thing, do they? The characters I'd like to quote a little bit from. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, I have got a quote from William Thomas. I didn't think I had, but I did. Just because I like him so much. The diarist, yes. Yes. I must admit, I was drawn to him. We've got the marriage of his brother. That took place in St Andrew's Major. And his brother continued to live here. Then, while William was still single, he writes, My mother told me they do never come to the house. They were the woman that our William was courting. My mother thoughts come to me. If God would only take her away, a wife would be very beneficial. Both William and his brother married very late in life after Mum had died. William writes, 12th of January, 79, married in Wenvo, William Thomas to Anne Caddock, may the blessing of God continue daily on the same. And he was about 52 or something. Yes, and so with his brother. You can just see Mum with her thumb down. No, you're not in there, courting here. <laughs> then, 1780, this Wednesday morning, about seven, my beloved son was born. And then, only in 1794, this night, about 11 o'clock, William and my beloved and blessed son expired, after he had been a half a year in a pitiful condition from the king's evil, which is on his right side and back, broke, and at last turned to a dropsy and swollen his leg with bitter coughing all the while, turned him to his bed for five weeks. O my blessed son, in whom is the fear of God, and God had given him knowledge very far in the mathematics, spelt T-I-C-K-S, and botany, above many thrice his age, that he knew more plants than most men. My greatest loss since my birth on earth, my son, fourteen years, five months, and ten days old, died, and was buried at Mickleston. A man in knowledge and a child in age, willing to die and willing to live. And later on, William tells of his own symptoms before he too almost certainly died of tuberculosis. No treatment at all. There's lots of reasons why we can be fairly sure of that. But there's a lot of lighter bits that he writes in his book. And I love the various murders he finds. I love all his scandalous comments. I love all his comments about Dennis Powers' fault. Thomas Drum of the South and them of the village went to the moors and gathered all the cattle of all the dwellers and took them to the pound. And then there's rows who should pay to get them out. He writes quite a lot about early Methodism and, again, how he often rowed with Nathaniel Wells. 
So read it yourself. There's lots of much better than the Sunday rags in it. Yes. And the good thing about um, diaries like that is they really bring an individual alive, don't they? And you get a real sense of the Absolutely. people who lived amongst as well. Yeah. So, yeah. no, that really enlivened um, that section of the book. You don't have to read it straight through. You can no. just pick it. But get it out the library and yes. dip into it. And that's the good thing about these 14 tales, in fact, because yes. I didn't read them in order. No. Um, I sort of... Started near the back for some reason or other. There you go. That's the way it works, and it was. Uh, it it doesn't for matter. Me. No, they're more or less self-contained. <laughs> a bit more misery, I'm afraid. I'm not giving you the pauper, but I am giving you the scholar Letty Piper, born in Swansea, 1883, came to St Andrews in 1891. The Piper family first appear on the census for the parish. Richard the father was born across the Severn estuary in Camelford, just off Bodmin Mill, and his wife in Swansea. Letty, at the age of eight, was the eldest of five younger brothers and sisters when Richard Piper moved his family across to South Wales and did so many Cornishmen at a time when South Wales needed workmen and Cornwall was losing its mining. He was a mason, so he had no difficulty in finding work in all growing industrialisation. They moved quite a bit when they first came to Wales, and you can pick that up in the census. And at the wrong time, Letty went to the National School. Disaster struck, not once, but four times. In September, baby Thomas died and was buried at eight months. The next year, the twins, Louisa and Florence, died and were buried at the age of ten months. More sadness came when another baby, Winifred, born in 1892, was buried at the age of only two. Letty must have suffered as she saw her baby sisters and brothers die. However, the next tragedy to hit the family was the death and burial of Letty herself in February 1896. The school log, which we mentioned briefly before I finish, tells us the death was due to typhoid and that the school all the pupils asked for and were given time off to attend her funeral. It can be reasonably sure that it was typhoid because tragedy didn't stop there. As the next child died in 1899 and then another one in 1900. Just at this time in 1889, in the Barry Dock News, newspapers now were a very good source of what was going on. A petition was presented by the inhabitants to the parish council in St Andrews regarding the sanitary state of Eastbrook. H. H. Lee, the Lord of the Manor, one of the last characters. Other councillors included and all of these people one gets to know when looking at old records, including Letty's father. The petition read, We the undersigned earnestly beg our parish council to move that in the matter of drainage, a parishioner has buried a daughter who succumbed to typhoid. The same practice parishioner has at present two children suffering from the same disease. They call on Landock and District Rural District Council. You can see how names are changing regarding the necessity of carry-out drainage. It's a tragic story because they weren't a poor family. Their neighbours were relatively well-off. Gardeners. One of the things I do like, builders. actually, about um, the book, Joan, is that um, how you focus on characters like this, but you also say who's living around them, hmm. which gives you an idea of... Your, and you can uh, get that, you see, from sense. how the data's organised. Yes. You can't get it easily, yes. but you can get it. So did you do that research yourself? Did you go to the census records yourself? I did it as my thesis for the diploma in Oxford, ah, so for which fun. I'm very pleased to say I got a distinction. Oh, very good. <laughs> so we're quite infamous in the land of the spires. 
Just two to finish with. One, because it's a very good story, and one, a very tiny vignette. Schoolmaster. We'd had schools all over the place in the village, little Dane schools, and we know there were a lot of them, but there'd never been any good school. And it wasn't just here that there was concern about education. There was the society, the National Society, which was Anglican, and took the children of churchgoers, and the parents paid a little bit. And we did have one for a while in St Andrews, but things were being worried about all over Wales. Questions asked in Parliament, and as a result, a commission was set up, and they reported in what are often considered the rather infamous blue books of the State of Education of Wales in 1847, and as a result of the parliamentary interest, our report for this parish was made and we've got it preserved. Remember, it was three English-speaking lawyers who visited all the parishes. So in 1847, the parish of St Andrews and the Hundred of Dinner's Paris called on Reverend Mr Richards, the incumbent, the priest, visited Mrs Andrews' school, the children did not know what is meant by the devil, nor what was the name of Jesus' mother. The mistress did not speak English correctly, but she seemed rather intelligent. Remember, the lawyer was English-speaking, and the children of the schoolmistress were Welsh-speaking. Not surprised they didn't hit off terribly well. The report goes on, there's a Sunday school with Calvinistic Methodists, but beside these I could not, after the most diligent inquiry, hear of any other school in the parish. And then he says, E.K. Lee, that's an ancestor of Herbert Henry, the Lord of the Manage, furnished me with the following particulars which serve to illustrate the vicissitudes to which the education of the poor is exposed. A previous school had been established in 1827 by the previous incumbent who died. After the beginning of 1831, the school was allowed to collect to drop as the subscriptions that the late incumbent had obtained were no longer collected. There had been 26 scholars attending. A new teacher was appointed, but in March the key to the schoolroom was taken away by the incumbent. The schoolmaster, being in every way discouraged and unable to get his salary, resigned. That was happening all over the country. It was sort of like a wild west of education, really. People Wasn't doing their own things. Um, yeah. yeah, not all of them good enough to do it, really. But very soon afterwards, the parish and obviously people like better off farmers and tradesmen all ganged together to say that they would not only start at school again, but they would go into the state system. And the state at this time was going to fund national schools for part of their needs. But the headmaster had to be tested. The children were inspected every year. But what is much more fun for us is the headmaster had to keep a logbook, a daily logbook. And this is the very first entry. Examined the scholars for the purpose to obtain honorary certificate for Mr. Williams, the headmaster. 45 boys, 31 girls. And then the nitty-gritty, which the logbook is full of, sent Lillian Rosie Dimmant from school till cured of ringworm. Edward John came late, detained him after school about ten minutes. Father says he shall not be kept, but come when he likes. Gave him the option of removing him. Alfred Hall destroyed the lesson cards. His mother came in passion 
and removed all his children. The prevalence of use of tobacco obliges me to search the children's and confiscate their pipes. <laughs> After dark, no decent young girls can pass unmolested by the lads who swear and smoke. Has anything changed? <laughs> okay, it goes on then. And what's so great about the log? It continuously goes down to the level of ordinary pupils. Three schoolmasters, the first sadly got terrible reports and got the sack. Probably the lord of the manor put a little finger in that pie. Then they had a good one and the school got more and more prosperous, but he moved on to higher things. And the one that the story really centres on is John Benjamin Mockford. Because of the log, we know a lot about him. The childbirth and death of his first wife, his remarriage, and how the school became more and more successful until the population increased so enormously that even he got discouraged. I love the school logs. Yeah, fascinating um, records to look at. Really. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you're from the village and you, know, you look back at your ancestors, oh I mean, yes, what, what a fantastic there's thing. lovely pictures in the book. And I was able to, of course, talk to quite a few people who mm -hmm. went to that school. So if I may, Chris, I'm going to finish with Dorothy. Okay. She's very nebulous. It's only a postcard on which she writes. On the front of the postcard is a picture of the truant school. The building still stands here in the village. Truant schools weren't just for bad boys. They were kids that they couldn't find a home for. All boys. We've got the census for 1901, and there were 57 young boys in that grim institute all from Cardiff, aged 13 down to eight, and about eight staff to look after them, one of whom was the laundry maid. Now, it is a hypothesis on my part, but I think it was the new laundry maid who wrote this postcard, and it's signed Dorothy. Dear Mog, I'm sending you a few lines in answer to your postcard. I was reading in bed this morning at one o'clock. I could not land down in bed. I was not very well. Do not tell my mother, because although I later suggest that she herself was a workhouse child, that doesn't preclude I have a mother, mm -hmm. because the mother couldn't keep her. They both went in the workhouse and got separated. I arrived here sometime in the night. This is a hole to get to in the dark, and it was raining. I thought I would never reach the place. There was nobody at the station to meet me, and I was tired with the luggage I had. I should not like to live her long. I've not seen a soul except the people next door. The work I had before, here I have a lot more to do. All the washing, and of course remember this was for all those little boys and all the staff. No modern equipment, mm. and I hope I don't have to stay here long, Dorothy. But again, it brings a flavour to the that yeah. institution yes. as well, doesn't yes. it, really? Yes. The, yes. The, yes. the grimness yes. of the, yeah. the building itself, yeah. the grimness of her first impression mm. of it. Um, yeah, it brings a whole I think they can all make, make you alive. cry, some of them, because they were real people. Mm. They were not just the workhouse. No, but we're very fortunate that there, there, there are glimpses of real people, and you know that history and local history mm. in particular has changed its direction a little bit, so it's not all about the rich and famous mm. and the wealth. Fascinating read, Joan. We've got it in all our libraries. 
Hey, I recommend anybody in the Vale of Morgan to come and take out a copy and read it. After listening to you now, I'm sure more people will be inspired to read it as well. So, and the great thing is, it's you know, this is a record that's going to be on our bookshelves there for forever. So it's good that you brought that information together and put it yeah. together in, inside one book. If you do want to buy one, Dennis Pairs Library's got copies, and we are asking if you can afford it five quid to the library. Because as you know, ours is a community library, very well supported in many ways by the county, and particularly by our professional librarians. But we have to pay to keep the building and the utilities and everything going. So if you buy one, hope you enjoy it. Thanks to all who've helped me. Joe. Great. Good time to say goodbye then, Joe. Thank you very much for spending this time with us.